You're listening to KZOM, Oleander Public Radio. August 1931, If the Sun Died, by R.F. Starzl, Part 1. By our system of time, we would have called it around 65,000 A.D. But in this cavern world, miles below the long-forgotten surface of the earth, it was 49,889 since the death of the sun. That legendary sun was but a dim racial memory. But the 24-hour day, based on its illusory travel across the sky, was still maintained by uranium clocks, by which the myriads who dwelt in the galleries and maze of the underworld warrens regulated their lives. In the office of the nation's central electro-plant, said a young man, he was unoccupied at the moment. He was an example of the marvelously slow process of evolution, for to all outward appearances, he differed little from the twentieth-century man. Keen intelligence sat on his fine-cut, kindly young face. In general build he was lighter, more refined than a man of the past. Yet even the long, delicately colored robe of mineral silk which he wore could not detract from his obvious virility and strength. His face flashed in a smile when a girl suddenly appeared in the middle of the room, materializing, so it seemed, out of nowhere. She resembled him to some extent, except that she was exquisitely feminine, dark-haired with a skin of warm ivory, while he was blonde and ruddy. Her tinkling, silvery voice was troubled as she asked, "'Have I your leave to stay, Michel Ares?' The look of adoration he gave her was answer enough. But he answered with the conventional formula, "'It is given.' He rose to his feet, walked right through the seemingly solid vision, and made an adjustment on a bank of dials. Then he walked through the apparition again, and standing beside his chair, looked at her inquiringly. "'You haven't forgotten, Michel, this is the day of the referendum?' Michel smiled slightly. It would be a day of confusion in Subterranea if he should forget. As chief of the Technies, he was in direct charge of the tabulating machines that would, in a few seconds after the vote, give the result in the matter of the opening of the frozen gate." but the girl's concern sobered him instantly. On the decision of the people at noon depended the life-work of her father, Senator Maine, and it was now nine o'clock. "'I'm sure they will order the gate opened,' he said instantly. "'All the technies are agreed that your father is right, that the great cold was only another, more severe ice age, not the death of the sun. The technies... Just as the girl had seemingly materialized, a young man now stood beside her. In appearance, he was a picture of pride, power, arrogance, and definite danger. His hawk-like, patrician features were smiling. This olive-skinned, dark young rival of Michel was Lane Mullen, son of Senator Mullen, ruthless administration leader and bitter opponent of Senator Maine's exodus faction. Lane looked at Michel insolently. "'Have I your leave to stay, Michel Ares?' he asked. "'It is given,' said Michel, without enthusiasm. 
I am not calling on you of my own will, Michel, the apparition of young Mullen said contemptuously. But Nita had the telucid turned on as I stepped into the room. It's as well for you that you're not here personally, Michel replied promptly. The last time we met, I believe I was obliged to knock you down. Lane Mullen flushed with a sidelong glance at Nita. The girl gave Michel a frightened look. Lane interpreted her concern rightly. Ordinarily, it's not safe to try anything like that with me. I could have you executed in half an hour. But I don't have to call on the state to punish you. Nita, you'll admit I'm taking no unfair advantage of him. Oh, I do, Lane, but... Lane reached out his hand to the dial, invisible to Michel, which operated the Telucid apparatus, and immediately the apparitions vanished. Michel looked at his own Telucid. Its great unwinking eye sat in the wall, but he did not project his own illusory body to the girl's home. He was a techni, one of the pitifully few trained men and women who kept the intricate automatic machinery working. On them rested the immense, stupid civilization of the caverns, and there was work to do. Michel felt that on this morning of her father's greatest trial, Nita would pay scant attention to Lane. Michel was testing some of the controls when Gobit Hanlon came in. Gobit was also a techni, and Michel's special friend. Like Michel, he wore the light robe that was universal among the civilians in the equable climate of the caverns. He walked with the light, springy step that was somehow characteristic of the specialized class to which he belonged, as distinguished from the languid gait of the pampered, lazy populace. Attached to his girdle of flat chain links was a tiny computing machine about as large as the palm of a man's hand, for Gobit did most of the mathematical work. You'll want me at the tabulating section, Gobit stated inquiringly. It may be well, Michel smiled. For the first time in centuries, I believe the general public is going to vote. Flo's Entine wants to come along. Michel's smile changed to a grin. He knew the pretty, willful, little sweetheart of Gobitz. If she wanted to be at the tabulating plant, she would be there. In fact, Gobit confessed somewhat sheepishly, she's in the car. The car was waiting in the gallery. It had no visible support, but hovered a few inches above the floor, above one of two parallel aluminum alloy strips that stretched like the trolley tracks of the ancients throughout all the galleries. The ancients well knew that aluminum is repelled by magnetism, but the race had lived in the caverns for centuries before evolving an alloy that possessed this repulsive power to a degree strong enough to support a considerable weight. Under Michel's guidance, the car moved forward silently, through interminable busy streets, with arched roofs, lined on either side with doors that led to homes, theaters, and food-distributing automats. Occasionally they passed public gardens, purely ornamental, in which a few specimens of vegetation were preserved. They passed multitudes of people, most of them handsome, with a pampered, hothouse prettiness, 
but betraying the peculiar lassitude which had been sapping the energies of this once dynamic race for a millennia. Yet today they showed almost eagerness. The name of Leo Maine, prophet of deliverance, was on every tongue. And what was the sun like? Like the great vitalites that were prescribed by law and evaded by everyone, except possibly the technies? Those technies, they seemed to delight in work. Curious glances fell on the gliding car. Some work in connection with the referendum? What must one do to vote? Oh, the Toulousid. Arriving at Administration Circle, the car entered a vast excavation half a mile in diameter, possibly a thousand feet high at the dome. Here were the entrances to some of the principal government warrens. Here also centered the streets, like radiating spokes of a wheel, on which many of the officials lived. Here the emanation bulbs, which were more frequent than in the galleries, so that the light was almost glaring. Guards of soldier police, the stolid, well-fed, specialized class produced by centuries of a static civilization, were everywhere. Not in the memory of their grandparents had they done any fighting, but in their short, brightly colored tunics, flaring trousers, and little kepis, they looked very smart. Their only weapon was a small tube capable of projecting a lethal light ray. Mitchell led his party to the audience hall. It was only a few hundred feet in diameter. At one end was the speaker's rostrum. Senator Maine was already there. He was tall, purposeful, but withal tired and wistful-looking. His graying hair was cut at the nape of the neck, sweeping back from his swelling temples in a manner really suggestive of a mane. His large, luminous eyes lit up. Is it nearly time? Yes, Senator, Mitchell said. The nation will soon assemble. Have you met Senator Mullen? I have had the pleasure, Mitchell acknowledged with a polite irony, since Senator Mullen gives me practically all my orders. Mullen acknowledged the tribute with a quick smile, without rising from his chair. He, too, was different from the average subterranean in that he was forceful and aggressive, like Senator Maine. He was still youngish-looking, of powerful, blocky build. His dark hair was carefully parted in the middle and brushed down sleekly. The twentieth century had known his prototype, the successful, powerful, utterly unscrupulous politician, and in a different sphere that type of extra-governmental ruler which the ancients called gangster. It was casually discussed in Subterranea that certain of the state soldier police were responsible for the mysterious assassinations that had so conveniently removed most of the effective resistance to Mullen's progress in the Senate. The once potent body had not held a session in ten years, didn't dare to, a cynical and indifferent public said, and a strange reluctance on the part of qualified men to accept the presidential nomination had left that office unfilled for the past three years. Mullen, as party dictator, performed the duties of president provincially. Floss, mischievous as usual, rounded her great blue eyes and gazed at Mullen with an expression of rapt admiration. Oh, Senator, she thrilled. 
I think it's wonderful of you to give Senator Maine an opportunity to debate with you. You are so kind. Mullen failed to detect any mockery. Luckily for a floss, he looked at her with half-closed eyes. The public must be satisfied, he rumbled. Senator Maine has aroused in them great hopes. A small matter might be adjusted, but only a referendum will satisfy them in this. But, Senator, the race is going to ruin. If we could get into the sun again, wouldn't you want that? I don't believe there is a sun, Mullen replied. Then, with the candor of one who is perfectly sure of himself, added, If Maine were right, I still couldn't permit the frozen gate to be opened. I can control the people for their own good here. It might not be possible outside. A deep musical note sounded. Suddenly the myriad inhabitants of Subterranea seemed to be milling around in the room. Actually, their bodies were in their dwelling cells, but their telucid images filled the hall. By a simple adjustment of the power circuit, their images, instead of being life-size, were made only about an inch high, permitting the accommodation of the entire nation in the hall. Their millions of tiny voices mingling made a sighing sound. Maine rose and stepped forward, raising his hand. Citizens of Subterranea, he began in powerful, resonant tones, and then went on to put into his address all the fervor of a lifetime of endeavor. He told them of those times in the dim past when the human race still dwelt on the surface of the earth, of the sun that poured out inexhaustible floods of life and light, of the green things that were grown not only to look at, but for food for all living things before food was made synthetically out of mind chemicals, of the world overrun by a teeming, happy, dynamic civilization. Then something happened. The sun seemed to give less light, less heat. Perhaps we ran into a cloud of cosmic dust that intercepted the sun's rays, Perhaps the cause was to be found in some change in the sun's internal structure, but the effects could not be doubted. Ice began to come down from the poles. Ice barriers higher than the highest towers covered the world, wiping out all life but the most energetic. Our ancestors and many other advanced nations began to burrow toward the hot interior of the earth, we today have no idea of the labor that went into the digging of our underground home. We are becoming degenerate. More and more of us, even those who still use the vitalites, are becoming pale and flabby. There are hardly enough technies to keep the automatic machinery in order. What will happen when those technies also deteriorate and lose the will to work? For deteriorate they must, just as Senator Mullen and his still active allies will, just as I will if I live long enough. There is a great force that we never know here. It is called the cosmic ray. It never penetrates to our depth, and our vitalites do not produce it. He then spoke of the proposed exodus, argued, pleaded, painted a rosy picture of the outer world, of a sun come back, a world of brightness and life. At the conclusion of his speech, a sigh arose from the assembled millions, a sigh of hope 
of half-belief. Had the vote been taken then, the frozen gate would have been opened. But Senator Mullen was on the rostrum, holding up a square, well-manicured hand for attention. In his deep, rumbling bass, he tore the arguments for the exodus to shreds. With the whip of fear, he drove away hope. If our savage ancestors lived on the inhospitable outer shell of the earth, he shouted, is that a reason for our taking that retrograde step? Read your histories. What happened to our neighboring nation of Atlantica only a short 15,000 years ago? They did just as this man is urging, opened their outer gate. It promptly froze open, and liquid air, the remnant of what in primordial days was an outer atmosphere, poured down the tunnels. The whole nation died, and we saved ourselves only by blasting the connecting passages between them and us with fulminite. A wave of fear passed over the tiny massed figures. For centuries the race had been rapidly losing all initiative, except for those few leaders who through superior stamina and religious devotion to the artificial sun-rays had maintained something of their pristine energy. Now they were hysterical with fear of the unknown. Even as Michel Ares adjusted the parabolic antenna of the thought-receptor vote-counting machine, he knew what the verdict would be. In a moment, the vote was flashed on a screen on the ceiling, 421 in favor of the exodus, and 2,733,485 against it. There was an eerie cheer from the people, and they began to dissolve like smoke. Mullen rose, bowed politely and smilingly, and walked out to where his magnetic car awaited him. It was with a feeling of deep depression that Michel Ares went to work the next morning. His despair was shared by the technies under him with whom he talked. At the Telestereo station, he found a bitter young man broadcasting a prepared commentary on the election ordered by Senator Mullen. It was congratulatory in nature, designed to confirm popular opinion that the nation had been saved from a great catastrophe and to glorify the principles of Mullen's party. And so, once more, this great nation has demonstrated its ability to govern itself, to protect itself against dangerous and unsocial experiments. The voice of the people is the voice of God. The government claims for itself no credit for this momentous decision. Each citizen has done his share toward the continuation of our safety, our prosperity. The young man finished the document, smiled a charming smile, and turned off the switch. Then he grimaced his disgust and lapsed into a glum meditation. "'What say, Kratz?' Michel asked. "'Trouble again on the West Sector. Had trouble getting power enough. Generators ought to be overhauled.' He made a helpless gesture. "'How about conscripting a little labor?' "'Tried it this morning.' Most of the people are still in a daze from chewing too much murklite. Those that are sober are too busy preening themselves for voting on the winning side. Kratz informed Michel that Mullen had that morning given up all pretense of constitutional government, 
had preempted the treasury and was consolidating his position as avowed dictator. He probably wanted to do that a long time, Mitchell commented. He didn't quite dare till that referendum yesterday gave him the real measure of the public. Well, I've got to be going. Mitchell took one of the small mechanical service tunnels back to his office. The latest news had hardly affected him, so keen was his disappointment over the defeat of the exodus. But he wanted to be alone. He walked through vast halls full of machinery, abandoned and rusting, through dark corridors that had once roared with industrial life. What would happen when the present overloaded machinery should break down, wear out? The remnants of the great technical army could hardly serve what was left. Each passing year, these silent, useless hulks became more numerous. The specter of famine was stalking amidst the dusty pipes and empty vats of the chemical plants. The horrors of darkness lurked amid the tarnished compression spheres and the long, hooded monstrosities of the power plants, inadequately served by harassed and overworked technies. In the middle of his office, Mitchell found the Telucid counterpart of Mila, sister of Nita Maine. She was younger than Nita, hardly more than sixteen. Her eyes were wide with terror as she sought Mitchell. Her cheeks were wet with tears, and her silken brown hair fell in careless disarray. Mitchell, she cried, as soon as she saw him. Lane Mullen has taken Nita. Taken her? And father is under arrest. Lane came this morning, crazy with murk-like gum. He had four or five soldiers with him. When Nita refused to see him, they broke down the door and went to a room. They dragged her out to Lane's car, and he took her to his warren near the presidential quarters. She there now? Yes, father followed Lane's car. Guards kept him out of Lane's warren, so he went to see Mullen. That devil only laughed at him, offered to call another referendum. Father had a small pocket-needle ray, and... Good, he killed Mullen? No, but he managed to burn a hole through his arm. He was rushed off to one of the cells, and Mullen says he will call a referendum to decide Father's fate. It would be just like that devil's sense of humor to let the people decree their only friend's death. They'll do it, too, Mila exclaimed tragically. Oh, how I wish Mother were alive! and each one will feel deep within him that he has done a great, commendable, and original thing, Michel added, with keen insight. Mila sank to the floor. Go to your room, Michel said, gently, stern. Mullen and his gang have reckoned without the technies. A woman's image appeared, stooping commiseratingly over Mila, a friend of the family. Michel ordered her to care for Mila. Then he took a deep breath. Gone was his feeling of helpless sorrow, leaving only an overwhelming, steadying, satisfying anger. He flung the telucid switch, barked cracking orders. In half an hour, every technical man of Subterranea was in a large storeroom near Mitchell's office. They were mostly young, keen, and alert, their skins red or brown from the actinic lights, their hair showing more or less bleaching from the same cause. As Mitchell talked, they became intent. They listened with a cold, deadly silence that would perhaps have made the smug millions of subterranea quake with fear. This affront 
put upon the only man in the government who could speak their language, who could comprehend their ideals, the peril of the girl they all knew and loved. These things set their long-repressed resentment flaring to white heat. They were ready for desperate things. A turn of a valve and water would thunder through the maze of galleries, a mishap far, far down toward the earth's hot core, and steam would rush up. But Michel steadied them. After all, Subterranea was their country. Anarchy was far from the Techni ideals. He had a plan. Nothing is to be done until we have Senator Maine and Nita, Michel instructed them. Remember that. Do nothing until you hear from me. Each of you go to your station. Set all adjustments so that they will not need attention for some weeks, at least. Those of you who have families, tell them to be ready to move to another residence. Say nothing about any trouble, understand? There were nods of assent. You will proceed to your posts and keep busy. When I come, it will be by Telucid. I will say nothing. I will simply wave my hand. That means you are to take your wives, your families, your sweethearts to substation number 37X. There were audible gasps. Not 37X, exclaimed one of the older men. Why, that's 20 miles up, near the frozen gate. Yes, Michel smiled with tight lips. You men willing? There was an instantaneous shout of approval. Curiously enough, seizure of the gate by force had not occurred to any of these law-abiding, well-disciplined group. But Mullen's lawless seizure of the government had removed all inhibitions of that sort. Seizure of the gate would bring at one stroke the realization of the dream that the Technies had tried for generations to win by political means. Surely, when the gate was open, and they could see the glorious half-mythical sun for themselves, the people would consent to the exodus. For the technies, even in the bitterness of defeat, were not antisocial. They hoped and worked for the devitalized races of Subterranea, for the betterment of their condition, more than for their own. The technies were the fittest. They had demonstrated their ability to survive unchanged under adverse condition. They would be least helped by the exodus. Yet they had worked for it all their lives, as had their fathers before them, out of unselfish love for humanity. There have always been such men. Through the murk of history we see their lives as small, steady lights, infrequent and lonely. With the opening of the frozen gate suddenly a possibility, the technies forgot their exasperation with a stupid mob. The gate is guarded, said an elderly man, dubiously. A small guard, Gobit Hanlon remarked quickly, and probably dazed with Merklight. Nothing to fear. Stay away from the gate, Michel instructed. Give no cause for alarm. If an emergency arises while I'm gone, see Gobit. Don't go alone, Michel, Gobit begged. A few of us with ray needles can storm the detention cells. We can clean out Lane's Warren. We might, but the Senator Anita would be gone. The alarm would be given. In a few minutes, there'd be a mob. The technies were already dispersing eagerly. Michel pressed his friend's hand, saying, I'll take my needle ray, and I know every way to get around there is. Alone, I'll attract no attention. Till later, Gobet and he was gone. 
Mitchell's way was through the smaller, less frequented communication passages used principally by the technies. Occasionally he did meet citizens, still light-headed after their election victory celebration, and lost, but he paid them no heed. He came to the ventilation center of that level. For ages no air had entered subterranea from the outside. All of the air had to be regularly reconditioned, and so was returned through a systematic network of air ducts to a vast central chemical plant. It was a latter-day cave of the winds, where the north, south, east, and west winds of that buried empire regularly returned for a brief few minutes of play amid chemical sprays, condensers, humidifiers, oxidizers, to be again dispatched to their drudgery. This hull was truly colossal, filled to the shadowy ceilings a thousand feet high with gigantic pipes, tanks, wind turbines. End part one, section four.